On this week's episode of Beauty and Bloom podcast. When you bring alcohol or substance abuse in the mix, you're just throwing gasoline on this forest fire that can be contained and you burn down everything in your path. And that's how it was for me. All the relationships, school, jobs. And it wasn't that I didn't care about my own life, but I was screaming for help and I didn't know how to get it. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. Your host. Hey, hey, what's up, y'all? It's your girl Kamia, and you are tuned in to another episode of Beauty and Bloom Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got a great show for you today, but I do want to start off by giving you this trigger warning. The content in this episode will be touching on mental illnesses, specifically bipolar, and there are going to be some mentions of suicidal ideation. So I encourage you not to listen if this may trigger you. And if you are having suicidal thoughts, please call 1-800-273-8255. First of all, it is... Women's History Month. So Mm -hmm. we are celebrating women all month. And I, again, like just having the pleasure of knowing amazing women, I'm going to just call it like women's her story month. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because we telling stories about our lives. And this is where I have real women come on, tell real stories about how they bloom when they're planted. As you all know, life is not an easy journey. We go through things, some of which are a result of our choices and our decisions. And some is just the cards that we were dealt and we have to play that hand the best that we can. And that's something that Francesca has done throughout her life. And I'm excited for them to get to know who you are, Freddie. My next guest is a great and amazing woman who is so intelligent. Oh, my goodness. And I have had the pleasure of getting to know her over the past, what, five, five, six years? How long has it been? Since 2014. So basically, we locked in, and I'm super excited about this next guest, my friend, Francesca Shoes. Hey, girl. Oh, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Listen, I'm so happy to have you. So I'm glad that you were willing to be a part of the podcast coming on, giving us just the insight to who you are and to your knowledge and what it is that you have to offer. Um, Well, again, I'm Francesca Shoes. I am 34 years old. I am a mother of three. I've had two children, but then the third one, my um, husband's uh, sister passed away and so now we have custody of her so I'm raising her so I call her she's my third yes <laughs> the middle of the two that I have um and I'm married I'm a wife I'm considered uh disabled I do not work uh because I have bipolar one disorder okay. so I do not work working is hard for me uh with like keeping a job so I was uh awarded a uh, disability from the state I sit at home and I just try to raise my kids and remain healthy as possible. 
you were saying that you have bipolar one disorder and some people may not know the difference between because what there are there two types but there's bipolar one and there's bipolar two and so the difference is with mania it's hypomania for bipolar two where it's like mania like full-fledged mania uh, for bipolar one. And then the difference uh, between the two, the biggest difference is hallucinations. Whereas with bipolar two, it's a milder version of it where you're typically the life of the party, always hypermanic and sometimes de- depressed as well. But it's a, a milder version of bipolar one. Now, this this may sound very ignorant, but this is why we're here to just kind of learn a little bit more about bipolar. But with bipolar one and two, are you diagnosed with bipolar two first and then it goes to a more severe level? OK, so that is how it happened. So what what happened to me was initially when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with bipolar two because I went through a um outpatient, intensive outpatient therapy where I was struggling at work. I didn't understand why I was having so many panic attacks because I am also panic disorder as well. Um, I have a lot of anxiety, floating general anxiety where it just comes out of nowhere. I don't need an antecedent or anything like that. It just happens. But they diagnosed me with bipolar 2 at first, and I was in the program for like three months every day before they could actually diagnose because they had to actually see me transition from one end of the polar to the other end. And they actually watched without the meds. And then that's when they knew how to treat me. And one way uh, that they diagnose you is by the meds. See your reaction with the meds and and how you respond over time. Usually it's about two weeks or more of depression or two weeks or more of mania, of hypomania. And so that's how they found out for me. And I had those, they watched me transition to both ends, not wanting to eat and feeling unworthy, useless. I was hypersexual. I made decisions that I wouldn't normally make if I were even, if I, if I was stable, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of reckless things, even like sex, sexual things. And so they learned all of that. And, and if you have a history of bipolar, so my dad's side, he, he had bipolar and then my mom's mom had a bipolar. So do they say with bipolar that it is hereditary? They say that it is hereditary. Now, I don't know if my grandmother on my mom's side was ever diagnosed, but the way they said that she was, it would seem, yeah. So, but yeah, for my dad, for sure, he still struggles with it. Just kind of going backwards, did you notice a change in yourself? And how old were you during that time where, at least even even retrospect, sometimes looking back, it's like, okay, now I know when that started to happen. So when did you start to notice symptoms or, yeah, so go into that. So it started as a teenager is when I went as a, in retrospect, as I reflect back now and then the the symptoms and stuff like that. Now I look back and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I've been experiencing this from since a teenager. Um, my mom says that I'm her her trouble child because I would just the way I would act. I'd be in my room for weeks at a time where I was just depressed, have anxiety. And then I'd be outside, you know 
fighting, doing reckless stuff, almost getting arrested, her having to save me from being arrested as a teenager. And then when I got in college is when I really, it was bad. Then I started coping with alcohol because I didn't understand what was going on with me. Getting in fights and clubs, not remembering about it, but also being the life of the party, just doing reckless things. And um, I noticed that my friends always had to have an intervention with me. But we didn't know what it was. And An intervention regarding alcohol or just the behaviors? Behavior, the alcohol, okay. everything. Mm-hmm. I started using alcohol as a coping mechanism. And the way my therapist, a class that I had to go through for that, the way they explain it is like bipolar is like a forest fire. You know, mm-hmm. a con- forest fire where it takes a bunch of people and a bunch of meds and everything to put out this flame. When you bring alcohol or substance abuse in the mix, you're just throwing gasoline on this forest fire mm-hmm. that can be contained and you burn down everything in your path. And that's how it was for me. All the relationships, school, any jobs, having struggling with jobs. And they just put up with me because they were just like, oh, she's so sweet. She's so kind when I was stable. But yeah, it's like it's like like wreaking havoc and burning everything in your path. And it just sucks because when I look back at it, there was relationships, even this, I was in a long-term relationship for four years and, and him having the conversation, it hurt when he was like, I can't be with someone that's killing themselves. You're toxic. I love you so much, but you're, you're lethal. Like I can't be with someone like this. You're killing yourself. You're, uh, and I can't watch someone that doesn't care about their own life. And it wasn't that I didn't care about my own life, but I was screaming for help and I didn't know how to get it. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. Not until I met my husband. So when you were going through this stage of just noticing, you know, having reckless behavior, coping with alcohol and um, trying to figure out what it is that you were dealing with, maybe the alcohol was just that way of just trying to silence all the thoughts of whatever was going on. But did you think because you were younger that it was associated to anything that was going on in your childhood? Did you go through anything in childhood that made you more susceptible to having depression or anxiety? And did you think initially that it was just trauma or PTSD that you were, you were responding to things in your childhood as opposed to it being an actual mental illness? And that's as a child, uh, it was so funny because my dad is, was abusive and he was a drunk. My dad beat on my mom when we were younger, but my dad would beat on my sisters and I would see it and I would watch it. But it's so crazy because my dad wouldn't put a finger on me. Like it was mm-hmm. weird. My dad wouldn't touch me because he'd say, oh no, Franny's so much like me, you know, so I'd get a pass. So I always watched my sisters get beat and I couldn't save them, but I didn't get beat and I just didn't understand it. Watching that anger and then went blew through life just angry. Don't know why that anger was always there. That anxiety was always there where it was just always fight or flight. And I don't know if it was because inside of me, I was just always anxious and scared and always worried thing bad was going to happen. And it was just my panic disorder. But I just, yeah, I watched my sisters get beat and I would used to feel bad about it because I'm like, well, why he didn't hit me? It's weird to think that way, but 
Yeah. No, but it makes sense too, because as you notice, or he's beating your sisters, but not you, the sisters are noticing that too. So did it begin to start to cause friction with your relationship with your sisters? You know, I, I don't know. Cause I wasn't really close with my oldest sister until now because me and her just didn't get along and she would uh, get beat the most by him for like the simplest things. One time, I, the last time where I was just like, okay, like I'm done living here. I couldn't stay in the house. I had to leave. We moved. I was 13 years old and my sister was 14, 15. We moved to my oldest sister trying to call my mom at night. It was like seven, eight o'clock at night. And she went to call my mom and then my dad comes out of the room upset and was like, oh, why are you calling your mom and you didn't ask and this and that? And my sister just simply said, so we have to ask permission to call our own mom. And my dad just got so upset, so angry and punched her in the mouth and bust her lip. And then I was trying to separate him like, daddy, no, daddy, no. And she was like, are you serious? And then he went to the garage to try to get a vacuum to beat her with the vacuum. And I'm like, in the middle of them, like, no, you better stop, like, like trying to push him. And he didn't even react towards me as like, I'm the one in your face. She's not. And you're still trying to hurt her. Like, I don't get it. Why everybody else is getting hurt except me. Like, because my dad gave me this title of being just like him. Franny doesn't take no crap. Franny doesn't. You feed into that thought. And sometimes you feel as if that, that's the role I need to play because mm-hmm. that's idled. Yeah. Especially and, being a kid and being impressionable. And yes. then, you know, with, with your parents, you want, you want your parents to see you and take delight in you. It seems like when they see themselves in you, whether it's the best parts of themselves or the worst, because they see themselves in you at times, that makes them take more delight in you at times. Sometimes it does. At least that's been an experience that I've just ever I've noticed parents saying just like me is a compliment. But being like the other parent is like, I can't stand you. You are not the person I want to be with. You the person that I would leave. Parents don't understand that what they're saying to their child when they are saying, oh, you just like me. You know, you just like your other your your daddy or you just like your mama. Have your mom ever said you just like your daddy to you before? No, she has not. She's just so sweet. My mom just never said anything negative about my dad. But but I just remember my mom doing everything in her power to make sure that we'd go and visit them when it was time for vacations like spring break or summer. My mom was the one that did the drive from Orlando, a four hour drive to Orlando, from Orlando to Miami to make sure we saw our dad and had a relationship with our dad. Our dad never sent for us. But it was my mom always dropping us off for the summer and stuff like that. So I saw where my mom was. No, she never. He didn't even help out with bills and stuff like that. No child support, nothing. And my mom did it without even saying one negative thing about my my dad and my stepmom. But they always were saying negative things about her. So, yeah. I love the beauty of how God will give you balance because mm-hmm. when you experience with one parent, you seeing all of this negative, And then with the other parent, you seeing like, you know, I don't play into that. There's a certain boundary line or a certain standard that I don't go over. And I think that that is a beautiful balance 
at least giving you an opportunity to kind of see both sides of who I, what I want to be, what I don't want to be, and being able to make that decision based on having a parent who is a little bit more compassionate and loving and sensitive to the effects and the impact of their words and how that can begin to change the the way that this the child sees their other parent. So kudos mm-hmm. to your mom. You know, I, I want to just go ahead and say that on the microphone because I do <laughs> love your mama. But that, oh, that's <laughs> that's that's really big because it's so important to to be mindful of what it is that you're saying because you the power of your words in the way that you begin to try and taint. I think that when a parent talks bad about the other parent, they reveal so much more about themselves, their pain, their brokenness, their bitterness, their resentment. And it's almost like throwing that brokenness onto the child. So kudos to your mom for doing that. I know one of the things that you were saying is once you got with your husband, Mm -hmm. that was that when you ended up getting diagnosed or is what happened during the time that you got with your husband after your four-year relationship? So after my four-year relationship, I got married, but my, my, so my husband now is my second husband. Okay. So I was married and- How old I, were you? I was 23. Okay. I was 23. And immediately after marrying, like he changed, he, you know, I thought he was one way, but he was another. He was abusive, mentally abusive, um, verbally abusive, threatened to kill me. So I ended that. Mm-hmm. But I was so much into the word of God that that was what saving me, uh, I think, like going through that stuff with him. But so I got a job, a facility where kids lived at um, who were like wardens of the state or like looking to be adopted. And I was a supervisor there. And then the kids that lived there, they either had like an IQ of less than 70 or had maladaptive behavior. So it was like always uh, the energy was just super high there. My husband now was a nurse. He was a psych nurse there. And we end up meeting each other. And like after the first day of like meeting him and getting to know him, we talked all day and have been together ever since. And it's going on 10 years. Okay. Um, love at first sight. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was a psych nurse and it was him that actually noticed the signs a month after he and I got together, I got arrested. It's so crazy. I was I was coming from a party and I was intoxicated and I was calling him to pick me up. And um, he was tired sleeping at home and didn't answer the phone. So I decided to drive myself home. And th- it was crazy because I had two flat tires trying to drive on the flat tires, intoxicated. The police officer just stopped me to helped me out with my tires, but then saw that, you know, I was intoxicated mm-hmm. and I was just all over the place. I couldn't do the the walk, the line, uh, you know, the walk mm-hmm. in a straight line, mm-hmm. the alphabets backwards, alcohol in the car while I was driving. So they had that. I hadn't slept in days. I was like all over the place. And I left and went to a party because I, he, I actually started an argument with, with my husband. That was my boyfriend at the time. We were only together for a month. And I was just like on a, I don't know, I was just all over the place and left, went, just started drinking and drinking and partying. And I was like, oh, you know, I could drive myself. Got lost. Didn't remember where uh, he lived because I was staying with him. Um, and then I remember getting arrested and I was like so bad. I remember like when I got sober, like the 
they, uh, the police officers telling me what I did. I was banging my head on the walls. I was, um, so they had to put me in a padded room. I re- uh, remembered, um, memorized all the, the name tags on the officers, their last name. So like I was in this room with just like a, a little rectangle window mm-hmm. that they open, slide a sliding door, they open and shut. Yeah. And so the whole entire time I was kicking walls and the doors, oh, Officer Wilson or Officer um, whatever, Bayard or whatever mm-hmm. your name is, like open the effing door, open it. And I just did that for hours. Like mm-hmm. that's how manic and intoxicated mm-hmm. I was. And I think I hadn't slept for like two, three days mm-hmm. at that point. And I remember them keeping me in there for a good 23 hours because that's how long they said that's how much uh, alcohol I had in me. So that's how long it took for me to get sober. Yeah, so it was a lot of alcohol. To me, it was nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's just how sick I was. I didn't even understand the severity of what just happened to me. I was 25 years old. Oh, my goodness. So once you came to, Mm -hmm. how did you deal with the realization of what was going on and the reality of the type of situation that you were in? When it happened, I still didn't understand the survey. My husband was trying to get me to understand that there's something going on. You, The way you're acting like really bad is toxic. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think that I understood the severity or cared until I actually got help. And I was 27. So two years later is when I actually gave a damn. So when it, when I really broke down was 2014. I had my daughter and six months after having her, I just started having really, really bad panic attacks. Like, I mean, it would hit me at work. It would hit me at home in the middle of the night, which was the worst because everybody's sleeping. I'm awake by myself. I'm screaming, crying in place. And I was in a dark place and I just couldn't get any help. And it just went on for days and sometimes weeks of having this panic attack. I would go to the hospital They'd give me medication and have me lay down, but then I'd go home and then I would have another panic attack. And so, you know, you can't keep going to the same hospital asking for, you know, this medication Mm -hmm. because it's an addictive medication Mm -hmm. at that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't addicted to it. I just needed help. So um, I wanted help so bad that I, my husband was like, "Um, maybe you need to see a therapist or a psychiatrist, something. So I um, called um, Community Health Network, uh, Behavioral Health Network, and they were like, okay, we need to do an assessment. So once they did the, the intake first, they were, and I was explaining everything, they were like, okay, we need to get you in an um, intensive outpatient program immediately because you, you definitely need help. You're in a dark place. Because mm-hmm. I just felt like I could, I was at the point where it's like, I can't live like this anymore. I can't go on like this. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be better if I was dead. So you were having suicidal thoughts at that time? Suicidal ideation. Mm. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, I can't. So they had to get me into it like automatically right right away. Mm -hmm. So um, I had to take a break from work and I went Monday through Friday for five to seven hours of intensive therapy all day. Um, and like getting coping mechanisms, learning like what's going on, what the trigger is. And it wasn't until about week eight of being there, they were like, okay, start you with some medication. 
And it wasn't until I got on medication is when I saw how deep and far gone I was in that dark place. My relationships with people started getting better. My relationship with my husband, who he still wasn't my husband yet at the time, that started getting better. And that made me feel good. But then I got better. When I got better, I want to say about six, seven months later, I was like, oh, well, I don't need this medication Mm. because I'm doing just fine. But not only that, when I explained it to my family, like, hey, I have this disorder. We just realized I have this disorder. I don't think my family took it serious. Therefore, I didn't take it serious Mm -hmm. because, you know, my family was just like, oh, you just need to pray. It's a demonic spirit. My mom was like, oh, it's your gut. It's what you're eating is causing you to have these panic attacks. And it's your gut that's causing you to feel this way and the depression and stuff. So for a while, nobody took the time to understand it. So I didn't want, I didn't care to understand it. The only person that was like, no, Franny, you really have a problem was my husband. And that was only because he was in the field. Mm -hmm. So he saw and understood and recognized the signs. Things started getting worse for me because I would get on the meds and then I would feel better and I'd be like, oh, maybe I don't have bipolar. Maybe, you know, it's, Maybe it is like something that I'm dealing with. It's something that's going on with me and I need to change this about myself or change that about myself. Maybe go to therapy or whatever. But then I wouldn't follow through with the therapy and then I wouldn't follow through with the meds. And it was just a cycle over and over again until finally uh, my family would just get annoyed with me, which didn't help because it was just like, Franny, look what you're doing to your life. Like, this is not okay. This is not. And it was like a... the way they would handle it, it wasn't with understanding. Like nobody you feel shamed. Would, it was like shame at the time because of my actions. Mm-hmm. And the way my uncle, who's passed, the way he put it, he said it best. Everybody was looking at the fruit, and no one was looking at the root. Mm-hmm. No one was looking at the root of the the problem, the root of the cause. It was just only looking at the outcomes and my actions and my behaviors. Um, in the end which with everybody was annoyed with. Mm -hmm. And it was even a struggle for me because, you know, being in this deep, dark place, you don't really feel in control and you can't help the things that you do or say. And most of the time when I come out of it, I don't even remember that month or two months that I was in it. And I'm being told all of these horrible Mm -hmm. things that I've done and said to the people I love. And I got to live with that. And people don't understand like how bad you feel about yourself as a person. Like I'm a horrible person. Like I feel alone. I feel ashamed of what I said or did. And now I got to look this person in the face at a family function or it's my sister or my mom, you know, and it got really like annoying for me because it was just like, well, nobody understands. So I don't, I'm just going to distance myself anyway, so that I don't got nobody saying nothing about me. I don't got nobody saying that I did this or saying I did that. I'm just going to be alone, but it only made me feel worse. Made it worse. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot of times you think you're saving people from your energy or from your toxicity by staying away from them or, or are you, or sometimes you get the 
you get the impression that you're being a burden to somebody and or you're feeling shame when you talk to them. So we try to rationalize it by, okay, I'll distance myself. I'll stay away. That will be safe for you. That'll be safe for me. But it ends up creating more opportunity for you to be in your head. You start thinking about yourself and then how you said, you know, feel like a horrible person. This is the unfortunate effects of it. And these are some of the things that I do. But how do you extend that compassion, self-compassion and self-forgiveness to yourself? First, for me, it had to I had to stop resenting the fact that I had bipolar, that I have bipolar. Mm -hmm. I was very resentful. I was very upset because I was like, out of all the brothers and sisters that I have, why did I have to be the one to have this disorder? Why did I have to inherit this? Like, this is some BS. Mm -hmm. Everybody's living their life. Why do I have to struggle? Why every, so every few months with or without medication, I'm going through a depression. Mm -hmm. With or without medication, I'm going, I am in mania. I don't understand. I'm hearing voices. I'm seeing shadows. I'm seeing things. Like, why me? Mm -hmm. And to get to a point where I didn't resent the fact that I had it. And how can I live with this? It's not going anywhere. It's the same way you like having bipolar. You got to take medication every day for diabetes. Or if I had high blood pressure, which I do, but you have to take medication every day for this high blood pressure. So I don't know why I would resent the fact that I got to take medication every day for bipolar because it's like being diagnosed with one of these chronic, other, these other chronic illnesses. Mm -hmm. And I had to see that, okay, there's not much difference in having to, as far as like the daily care, like it's not that just take the meds and understand that there is truly something wrong with me because mm -hmm. at first I didn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. And I always doubted the fact that what if I really don't have it and it's just some personality disorder or something, which some people get mixed up with bipolar disorder. They, they think, it's a personality disorder, which it was, and it was bipolar. But I had to then see that people around me, well, first off, my family, I started getting some support from my family. Something shifted. And I think this last time in June, I just got so tired. I took a bunch of sleeping pills this past June and I just could not, I was in a very dark place. I was getting into arguments with everybody. And I mean, my sister told me before, like while I was going through it, that something about that she had a dream that I was just sitting in my own grave, drinking alcohol and just sitting in my own grave crying, mm -hmm. you know, and it had this dream the day before I actually took all those pills and went in the hospital. Oh, wow. And so, I was just so tired and I was in such a dark place. I mean, I got my husband and I got into a fist fight that I initiated. That was like crazy, too. And I know that I hurt him so much. My sisters, my, like all my sisters, my mom to where my mom moved out. My mom was living with me and she moved out. And I ended up being hospitalized for the fifth time. And the bad part about it was that I was hospitalized three times in one year. So the, the cycles started becoming more frequent. So, um, but yeah, it was this last time. And the way my, my family responded to me was like with compassion. It wasn't one of those, 
Like, oh my gosh, Franny, like again, like you're going to lose your kids. Ron's going to take your kids from you, which I used to hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you, you want to be divorced and Ron leave you and Ron do this. And, and, and it was just, it didn't feel loving and mm-hmm. it didn't feel supportive at all. So sometimes when uh, family, you think, family members think that they're helping you by, oh, giving you this stern advice, and sometimes it's not helpful. All it does mm-hmm. is just put the person further deep into the depression or it's like that it's not compassionate at all versus understanding, well, what can we do to help you? Where, where are you right now? How are you doing today? Which is how my family responds to me today. So now I don't feel as paranoid when they say, Franny, something's off or something seems different. Did you take your meds? Whereas before I would think people are trying to control me mm-hmm. and are trying to gaslight me, but really they were just trying to help. Mm-hmm. Once I stopped resenting myself for having bipolar is when I started to uh, be more kind to myself and give myself more grace. So is what I will say. And then now understanding that I can live with bipolar and have a regular life, but it's more, I need to be active in my own treatment. Yeah, it sounds like being active and being intentional, being able to recognize what it is that you need, what it is that helps you, the best habits and practices that you can put in place that'll normalize what you're dealing with and what you're going through so that you can get back to a space where you usually are. The episodes, how often do the episodes happen? Because I know that you said that it ended up being like three times in one year you were hospitalized. So is it a situation where people who are dealing with bipolar, they have an episode, like, is it generally once a year? Is it seasonal type of situation? How does that work? It's very different. Mm -hmm. Everyone, because there's this thing called rapid cycling where people will cycle every two weeks. Mm -hmm. Or whereas for me, I have a cycle, I have an episode every three months and whether I'm on medication or not, it comes. Then I have to call. It's on me to like recognize and people around me to pay close attention and be intentional with my treatment and see when things are different. I I hear this a lot, but sitting with some of our feelings and our emotions and really exploring that. Do you think that that helps when you sit in those feelings and those emotions, especially if they are negative, does that help you to do that? When I say sit with it, I mean not using substances to run away from it. Okay. Uh, Sitting with it and analyzing, exploring, like, okay, where is this truly coming Mm -hmm. from? How did this begin? How can I work through this is when I say sitting with, because usually I'll try to fight it and Mm -hmm. use substances to um, block it out. And so I now have to actually experience it and explore what exactly is it that I'm feeling? Am I manic right now or am I depressed or is this just truly life? So I have to understand for myself, am I experiencing something that a a healthy person would experience or is this truly the bipolar that I'm experiencing? And do I need to tweak my meds or do I need to explore what is causing this, this negative feeling? Makes sense. Yeah. I'm going back. You were talking about the support you needed from your family. We hear a lot, especially with Black families. We hear, you know, you ain't praying enough. Fastest out. It's going to come out of you. So we're always turned to God. And 
especially as a believer. I don't believe that it is always an ill intent. Sometimes it may be. But when you are a family of faith, you can compassionately help navigate that person back to a healthier space spiritually, but also acknowledging that there's other help that you need and it doesn't make you any less of a believer. It doesn't make you any less loved by God, but you just need help in other areas with professionals who can help you become healthier. So what would it, what would be maybe three to five things that you think people should stop saying, especially with regards to the spirituality? The first thing is that for me, it just bothered me to be like, um, it's just a demonic spirit. Demonic spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, demonic spirit. And that's what it is. And the other one, oh, you're not praying enough. And you listen to this pastor so you can be delivered or go to this person so you can be delivered. Or you don't need the meds because you need to just keep praying. You're, you need to pray harder and you don't need the meds. When really what's helping me now, to be honest, is because I actually have a good balance between my spiritual life and the the science behind it. If anything, pray to God that the meds are doing what they need to do to keep you healthy. And then also pray that one day that I would be delivered and is in a sense where things gets easier for me. You know, I pray that one day that I do get healed, but I'm still going to stay on my meds Mm -hmm. where I be on my meds and I don't have to experience it. But the whole like you used to be a prayer warrior. What's going on now? Like you used to be able to pray out. What happened to you? You're like, what's going on with you and your walk with God? And then I was like, okay, dang, if I'm experiencing this, like, am I being punished? And I myself used to feel like God was punishing me. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that hearing those things would then make you in turn look at God and say, you must feel about me what they feel about me. So Mm -hmm. maybe I'm not showing up enough for you. And as a result of that, you're punishing me and tormenting me with this illness. Yeah. And I had to learn God is a God of love. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that God caused any negative thing on me anymore. I don't feel that way. God is not punishing you. God is not punishing you. That is something that people need to hear. They need to hear that God is not punishing you. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever it is that you're facing, rather it's a financial issue, a mental health issue, emotional issue, whether it's a relational issue, God is not punishing you. We have experiences with people and people use their words in such a way that we begin to see God in the way that we see the people that we've experienced in life. And we begin to think that God's thoughts are reflective in the thoughts that that person has about us or uh, regarding us and even the words that they speak like, dang, maybe God feels this same type of way. So God is not punishing you. I'm saying that a million times right now because I have to sink, have that sink into my mind at times when things don't seemingly go the way that I want things to go. God isn't punishing you. People say whatever it is that they need want to say about you and you have no control. They treat you however they decide to treat you but it is not reflective of God's love for you. I feel as if unless I understand the true nature of God, I will not understand my new nature in God. I'm evolving now because I'm learning the word of God. 
and understanding who he truly is. And that is key. That's really important to know God for for yourself. So nobody can ever tell you about God and how he thinks of you and what he how he sees you and how he hears you. I was yeah. hospitalized when they brought a pastor in and to preach to us in the hospital and him like stressing, you need your quiet time with God. And so now I wake up understanding that I am more than a conqueror. Mm-hmm. So I can get through these hard times. I am the head, not the tail. I, those things that I have to armor, armor myself with to get through these hard times when I'm praying, because now I and. When I have panic attacks, I cry out to Jesus. I cry out. I take my meds. I lie down and I just pray and I cry out to God. And those are the things that I lean on, but not just solely on God and Mm -hmm. then forget my meds. Mm -hmm. There has to be a balance. There's a responsibility that you have, you know, and in that responsibility is you have a responsibility to take your meds. That's going to help you. That is great. I want to ask you, what other ways have you supported your emotional well-being? And even with your family too. So for me and my well-being, I had to, I had to learn this thing that I learned in the hospital. We had to look at our comfort zone. And when we think of comfort zone, we think of it as like, oh, it's just something that we're used to because we feel comfortable in it. So I'm just going to stay where I am and I'm going to continue doing the same thing. But what we don't realize is sometimes our comfort zone are things that are toxic. And so what I had to learn to do is to enter my courage zone. I really like courage zone. Courage Mm -hmm. zone. I never heard that, but I love that. So it's getting the courage to get out of your comfort zone. Comfort zone is I like to argue and I'm so used to arguing with everybody. I continue to argue. Mm. Me getting into my courage zone is let me listen more. Let me be vulnerable and not be so uh, defensive or oppositional all the time and understand where the person is coming from. So how do I get in this courage zone and sit with, with what it is that I'm feeling and work through this anxiety? That's me having courage to do that versus just being in my comfort zone and using substances mm-hmm. to get through it. So when you think of comfort zone, everybody thinks of this simple, the lightweight. No, there's some dark comfort zones that we have. Come on. And we need to get out of it. So when I think of comfort zone, I think of not taking my meds because I feel good. So I'm comfortable now. Let me get out of that. Comfort zone can be really nasty and bad habits too. Mm -hmm. This, This cycle of psyching yourself out into believing that this makes me feel better. This makes me have the energy to do X, Y, and Z. This gives me calm and peace of mind. And it does not at all. It worsens and it worsens. And then that addiction or that substance becomes like almost your friend. Mm -hmm. Like I've been in a place where I have been like, yo, I need my friend today. And that is when it becomes problematic because you definitely are coping with the hard stuff by Mm -hmm. using that. Mm -hmm. Ooh, girl, the courage zone, tapping into that courage zone. That's Mm -hmm. something that I'm going to definitely take away from this conversation because I never heard courage zone. A lot of times we just want to avoid fear or we say, let's just be fearless. 
But mm-hmm. it's like, let's connect that to what it is that we actually want. Like we really want to dive into courage. We really want to walk in courage. And mm-hmm. so just having that courage zone and having that switch of this is what my focus is. This is what I'm tapping into. This is what I'm trying to walk in more. I love that so much. So, so much. When you were mentioning about not sleeping Mm -hmm. and when I hear you say like, I didn't sleep for two days, is it literally no sleep at all? Just being really no sleep awake, awake and wired. Like being in college, it was fun. The mania for me was fun and exciting because I I had the energy to do things that I wouldn't typically do. But now that I'm older and the more frequent it gets, it becomes into, it turns into irritability and not energy. Mm. And I'm agitated all day. I am irritable and I'm on edge. It's like having a serious case of FOMO, but on level 20, where you're just awake thinking you're going to miss out on something when you're really not and you just can't sleep. You think you're asleep, but you're awake the whole entire time. It's just really weird. And it gets like that around day three. What do you think is important for people to know about someone who's dealing with bipolar and what their needs are as far as like common. Cause I know the needs can be different, but more so like a commonality across the board, what someone who is dealing with bipolar, what they need from the people around them. Awareness, awareness, educate. If someone you love has bipolar, the best thing you can do is educate yourself so you can better understand what it is that they're going through. But once you educate yourself and understand the whole thing, and then you start recognizing it with the person that you love, then you'll be able to to converse in, in a place where the person can tell you, hopefully it's healthy enough to tell you what it is they specifically need from you. But mostly it's support, but it's educated support. Don't treat me how you think I need to be treated. Educate yourself to help me. And there is groups out there for families like NAMI. Um, There's groups out there that helps family members who have loved ones with disorders, with mental disorders. Because the family ends up needing therapy, too. Yeah, because I was going to ask that, too, the mm-hmm. impact that bipolar can have on the family and the people around, especially like you were mentioning earlier. There are times that you say things and it can affect your relationships and then it can start to make the person feel like, OK, this is what you really think of me. So I'm good because I'm being attacked and I'm trying to support and love on you, but it's difficult. It's hard because I feel like I get scarred and wounded when I get too close and when I'm trying to help. So what is it that you feel like the families would need or the impact that bipolar has on your family? Oh, bipolar has played a major role or impact on my family because my mom would always say, when Franny's going through it, I'm going through it. Mm -hmm. When Franny's not well, nobody's well. Mm -hmm. Because I put everyone through the ringer. And if you don't take like responsibility of that and understand like, okay, I need to take my health serious because it's impacting my family members to where it can even cause your family members to get PTSD. 
which is one of the things that my husband is dealing with, with all of the things that I have done through my episodes that he's still dealing with. Yes, he loves me, but he's not going to forget those things that I did. And I've done some horrible things and being afraid when the next shoe is going to drop and them not being okay with knowing everything's okay right now. Like that's not even enough because they're afraid that something's going to happen again. And so I had to take my illness serious enough to gain trust from my family again that I was going to stay on my meds. Like, come on, Franny, you've got to take some responsibility And that was up to me now, like, okay, you know what? They did get educated. They Mm -hmm. are being compassionate. Okay, Franny, now you got to do the work. You got to put in the work because these people don't trust you. And I'm not putting it into consideration that everybody hurts. And for a while, I thought it was just, whoa, me, nobody understands me. But I also didn't understand the impact that I had on my family to where some of my family needs therapy. So as a mom of three and dealing with bipolar, how does that affect the way that you have seen yourself as a mother? And then what would be your encouragement to other moms who are dealing with bipolar and raising their kids? Oh man, I try to take it one day at a time. It also encouraged me to stay healthy when I understand that my kids are impressionable and they're going to remember they're growing up. And if I continue this, they're going to be at an age where it does affect them and it does affect their life. I had to get to a point where I understood what I can and cannot do what type of mother I can be. I know I can get up at this time and take care of the mom, but I'm going to also need help from my husband. My husband plays a big role in helping and helping out with the house. Like it's not just, oh, Franny, you're the mom, you're the stay-at-home mom, so you got to do everything. I have support and I don't know if other people have that. Every few weeks I wake up and I have anxiety and I, it's just unbearable and I can't get out of the bed to get my kids ready. My husband made sure that his work time, his work schedule is where he doesn't go to work until after the kids go to school. So he helps me get the kids ready in the morning, especially on those days when I can't get out of bed. He will get up and he'll let me stay in the bed. Oh, that is awesome to have that. That person just being there and being understanding and being patient and being supportive and just recognizing that. There's a need, but what I really appreciate and love about you is just your sense of awareness and where you are now and understanding that I can impact and I affect people and it could be negative. How do I face this person? Having just that awareness of knowing that this is part of what happens, it goes to show that one, you do value your relationships. You don't really want to hurt anybody intentionally. And so that just leaves me to believe that you'll be willing to have the conversation in the event that something did and does happen, or you say something that you truly don't mean. And then I'm able to hear it differently too, because a lot of times when somebody's angry, you just think that now you saying what you really think about me. You've been sitting on this for a minute and now I know. 
and not looking at it from a place of this is a mental illness. I don't want to be draining. I have to put my ego aside and understand, like, even if it it wasn't my intent to hurt the person, I need to make this right because someone I love is hurt. So now I make sure that if I did do something or if I sense that, oh, this conversation, I don't think that conversation sat right with me. I will call the person back and make sure that we're in a good place. So I'm, I'm working on my communication. Even through this illness, I want to have better communication with people and to better communicate my thoughts and feelings to where it's not hurtful to people. So making sure my relationships are intact. Yeah, it goes too with having compassion with yourself. That to me, Franny, I don't know if you see it this way, but that is literally you looking shame square dead in the face and punching it. Because when I think of shame, I think we just shame is I said something hurtful to somebody and now I have to face them. That's shame, too. That's shameful. And so the fact that you're willing to have those conversations just goes to show that one by one, little by little, it's just something that's so small that you can overlook. But that is killing out and starving the shame. Now I know this is something that I do that I'm I'm subjected to doing at times, but I'm not going to walk in shame with it. I think that that's awesome, Franny. Yeah. And it comes back. It all boils down to I've done crazy stuff and like just being under the influence or like being manic and where I didn't have to be under the influence. And I was still doing these things because of mania and I have to live with those things that I have done. Mm -hmm. But again, this goes back to understanding the nature of God and my new nature in God. Mm -hmm. And so nobody can throw my old self in my face because I know where I am with my walk with God now. And no one can shame me for something that I already know that I've done, that I've dealt with and forgiven myself because, you know, that is just thrown into the sea of forgetfulness for me because God has forgiven me. Absolutely. If you could go back and give yourself a single piece of advice, a word of encouragement, what would it be? It would be that I'm not alone. And I felt alone for a very long time. This is not an isolated incident that it's just me that this is happening to. There's other people out there in the world that are living with this and are okay. And that this diagnosis is not the end of the world. There's help out there. And I wish that I knew that there were resources out there. Mental illness is real. So then someone who has recently gotten the diagnosis, again, just kind of walking them through some of the things and the resources that they should take advantage of, first and foremost, what would you say? I would say search for a behavioral health hospital or a behavioral health center and try to get an intake. Keep documents of like stuff that you're feeling and things that you've been through. So then when you do get the intake or you do get that first appointment, you can basically illustrate a picture for them so that they'll have enough of information to get you the help you need instead of being dismissive Mm -hmm. and thinking, oh, you're just dealing with a bunch of stresses in life. When this could have been an ongoing thing that you've had for years Mm -hmm. and it has nothing which life stresses, I would go online and and there's a lot of mental health group support groups as well that's out there. So NAMI is one of them, Mm N-A-M-I. Okay, N-A-M-I. 
So, yeah. So if you're dealing with any mental illnesses, make sure that you follow what Franny is saying, because she is very much so knowledgeable. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here, Franny, because you have a clear understanding of what's going on. You're able to express what it is that the experience is like and what people need, bringing this awareness to it. And then also, I do think that it's so important for us to be aware of what's going on with mental health. And so maybe we can have you back in May too. Okay. Are you a part of NAMI? No. Do you go to the support group? No, I'm not a part of that. I have a group chat with a group of women who I was hospitalized with who have bipolar. And so I chat with them. I do think that the awareness is so important and just talking about it and getting people to a place of having more of an understanding what bipolar is, the effects that it can have on families, on the person and moving forward with following through with the resources, the meds, utilizing tools like group chats and and mm-hmm. going to support groups and, and connecting and having community is mm-hmm. always going to be so important. Beauty and Bloom podcast, we talk about blooming in life. And so I want to ask you just in the last question, Franny, how are you blooming? I just feel so blessed. Regardless of being diagnosed with bipolar, I have been blessed with an awesome husband, awesome kids, um, awesome family. They call and they check on me every day. I mean, every day, because one day can will change everything. Well, I'm super happy that you have the support system that you have, because I know that I'm like in the family, but I'm not in the family, you know. <laughs> And mm-hmm. I love how close you all are. I love how supportive you are. I love how I can go to Shantae's house and I see the kids over there. I can go to your mm-hmm. house and I see the kids over there and you all getting together and doing fun stuff and celebrating just life. I can only imagine the fruit that comes out of that level of support and those relationships. There's fruit that's coming out of that. And that is fruit that's sustaining fruit and it's going to continuously It's going to continue to harvest. It's going to continue to manifest. It's going to continue to happen. And girl, you got folks out here proud of you. Yeah, we had a crying moment. Aw. Almost cried a couple times while you was talking today. Because I can just feel the heart and what you are saying. And I can tell that there are moments that cause you pain. Like you don't want to cause people pain. Like you don't have that heart. You're not a burden to your family. You're not a burden to your friends what it is that you're dealing with, prayerfully, God has equipped everyone around you to have the capacity to love you, to be patient with you, to support you, to walk with you through this, and then to remind you of who you are. So don't ever feel like you are a burden by what it is that you're dealing with. And always see how you have grown and evolved and just setting perimeters and boundaries to set yourself up for success. So continue that journey. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's a lot to me. Thank you. I just feel, and I know that I know it only gets better from here. Absolutely. Feel it in my spirit that I just know that I know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) God has, God has something planned for me. um, And that, with what I'm going through, it's it's not for nothing. There's there's something, there's a takeaway from this. Mm-hmm. And so 
I'm looking forward to see what God has planned for me. Yeah, it's coming. Thank so you. I want to say thank you so much for being here on Beauty and Bloom podcast with me, my little oh, Beauty and Bloom. It's been <laughs> a pleasure, and thank you so much for trusting me with this uh, with this oh, episode and my story. So yeah, absolutely, and I'm looking forward to having you back. Yeah, it's no problem. It's no problem at all. This was a pleasure. So I. I am glad that I'm at a place where I can reflect now and it doesn't trigger me. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm that's growth and progress. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you, darling love. I love you. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Beauty and Bloom podcast. Francesca did a great job giving us an idea of what it's like to walk in her shoes and journey through life with mental illness, more specifically with bipolar. So hopefully you and I can better equip ourselves with education so that we are showing up to be the best support possible. If you or someone that you love is dealing with mental illness and you have not been diagnosed or you have yet to get the help, please make sure that you follow what Francesca was sharing. There's so many resources out there available to you and for you. So be in pursuit of those resources so that you can get the help that you deserve. And if you or someone that you know is dealing with suicidal thoughts, please know that help is available. Your life is worth living and we don't want to imagine life or live life without you here. Please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is 1-800-237-8255. Again, the number is 1-800-237-8255. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Beauty and Bloom Podcast and also check out the website. That's beautyandbloompodcast.com. And until next time, you already know, much love and keep blooming. Bye. Beauty and Bloom Podcast. Bloom where you are planted. I love a good conversation. Let's go deep. Topic is off limits over here, okay? We can talk about anything. We don't water down beauty to just being physical. True beauty is in what we have strived through, what we have overcome. Beauty and Bloom Podcast.